Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to those of you who are in the house, and of course, to those joining us online and in the bonus room across the aisle over that way somewhere. Um, Good to have you here today. Uh, We are continuing our teaching series about power, and if you're just joining us, I just encourage you, if you can, go back and and hit the first two um, messages in this series because they're building on one another. But we're going to be reflecting on our emerging cultural beliefs about power, but we're also exploring what the Bible teaches us about power in this series. So if you have a Bible handy, I want to encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 8. So if you have digital paper, whatever that is, um, turn to Acts chapter 8. There's also some paper copies back there, I guess, on the rack. They're blue, and if you want to grab one of those, you can. Um, if you're looking for teacher note, teaching notes, you will have received those when you came in this morning. Uh, for those of you online, the crosspointchurch.ca slash notes, those are always helpful for you to follow along. Of course, we've, I've also added some supplementary resources. If you want to do a deep dive into this series and this conversation about power, I encourage you to go there and to check those out. So, okay, for the past couple of weeks, we have been talking about power specifically in our culture. And the week one, we talked about creative power and how that is a gift to each and every one of us. Uh, Last week, we talked about opposing powers. We talked about the way from above and then the way from below. This week, uh, we are going to be talking about seeking power. And more specifically, we're going to be talking about power in the church, in the life of the church. So I want to begin with a simple question this morning. It's just simply this. Is the church at its best when it is seeking power? Or is there a downside to the church seeking after power? This is the question I'd like us to explore this morning. Hold that question in your mind. Uh, We're going to be looking at a story in the book of Acts that Well, quite frankly, it scares the snot out of me. And I think it should scare the snot out of any Christian leader or any pastor who looks at it. It's a story of somebody who wanted God's power, but for all the wrong reasons. So we're going to get right into the text, but let me give you a little bit of a backstory on what we're going to be reading today. Here's what's happened. This is the early days of the church. So the church is still it's in, in its infancy stage. It was launched in, in the city of Jerusalem, but resentment began to grow in the city against this fledgling little movement. And finally, what happened was a full-on persecution broke out against the church by their own Jewish countrymen. And so, so many Christians, a large number of Christians, you might even say most of the Christians, fled Jerusalem and they moved to other parts of the country. Some of them ended up in Samaria, others of them ended up in different parts of Judea. So this is the moment we find ourselves in the text, Acts chapter 8. I'll start reading at verse 4. encourage you to follow along with me as I read. Here's verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip, when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had, uh, who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So this is interesting, because even though the church was persecuted, the church was not powerless. 
And this is ultimately because the power of the people of God does not rest on popularity or politics. The church, rather, had a different power. It had a power that came from God. And this power gave them courage to preach the word in extraordinarily difficult circumstances. Now, Philip is interesting. Philip was one of the first disciples to follow after Jesus. In fact, he was one of the 12 apostles. So he knew Jesus personally. He had been trained by Jesus. But the thing about Philip was he wasn't a headliner apostle. He wasn't like Peter or James or John. We read in Acts 6 that he actually became one of the deacons in the church. He was one of the seven who were chosen to oversee the food distribution to the poor. So essentially, Philip waited on tables. But Philip, it says, was full of the Spirit's power. And this power enabled him to heal people. And it enabled him to speak the gospel with authority. And because of this, when Philip spoke, people paid attention. And this is important because it plays into what comes next. Verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. All right, so, so now we meet Simon, right? And, and, and Simon was a magician, not a, not a rabbit out of the hat kind of magician, okay? He manipulated spiritual powers, and he was actually able to do some pretty amazing feats. Now, we don't know exactly what he did, but what we do know is that he amazed people with what he was doing. And like Philip, notice this, it says that people paid attention to Simon. So Simon had, had a mystical power, but not only that, Simon had celebrity power. People were amazed by him. They, they elevated him to stardom. They called him the power of God that is called great. So because of this, this, this kind of gave Simon a, a platform. It says that people paid attention to him. And, and this was extensive, actually, in its scope when you think about it. Because it says this. It says that his power transcended social and ethnic brackets. Notice it said that people paid to, attention to him from the least to the greatest. That's a lot of power. But there was one fundamental difference between Simon and Philip. Philip proclaimed Christ. Simon proclaimed himself. It says in verse 5 that Philip proclaimed to them the Christ. And then it says in verse 9, Simon was saying that he himself was somebody great. So Simon was, was seeking a very particular kind of power. Something that we would call status. And I want to talk about status. I'm going to explain status in just a minute. Before I do that, though, I think it's important that we first talk about privilege. Because in our current cultural conversations that we're having, I think a lot of times we confuse privilege for status. So let me hit the pause button on Simon's story for just a moment and explain the difference. What is privilege? I like Andy Crouch's definition in his book, Playing God. He says, privilege is the ongoing benefit of past successful exercises of power. So it's, privilege is actually a special kind of power that you receive that requires actually no effort on your part. You just receive this power, this privilege, as a result of maybe where you were born, or what environment you were raised in, or who your family of origin is. We all have degrees of privilege. Did you know that? For example, do you drink clean drinking water? That's a privilege. 
Do you drive a car? That's a privilege. Do you have a heated house? Thankfully this morning, I hope your answer is yes, but that's a privilege. So we all have degrees of privilege, and some people have different privileges than others. If you haven't noticed, I'm kind of a big dude, right? I do not have the privilege of being a fighter pilot or a horse jockey. I looked it up. The average weight of a horse jockey is 118 pounds. That's the weight of my left leg. Now, now, privilege has become a bad word in our present day, almost a dirty word. And maybe you've heard the statement before, check your privilege. But privilege isn't necessarily always a bad thing. You cannot blame somebody for just for having privilege. They didn't come out of the, room, uh, out of the womb, right, with this secret agenda to rule the world as a result of their privilege. You know, and in fact, it can actually be argued that the Apostle Paul had privilege, the Apostle Paul, if you know his story, he was born in the cosmopolitan city of Tarsus. He came from the tribe of Benjamin, which for the Jewish people, that was a kind of a big deal. He spoke multiple languages. He studied under one of the most famous rabbis, Gamaliel. And Paul was also a Roman citizen. So this something was something that was actually very hard to acquire in his day. Like maybe 10% of the Roman Empire had Roman citizen status. And Paul actually even used his citizenship, his privilege, to get him out of jail at one time. You can read about it in Acts chapter 22. So privilege isn't necessarily wrong when it's something that can benefit a lot of people. So drinking water is a privilege for a lot of people, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Having the Bible translated into your language is a privilege, because not every language group in the world actually has the Bible translated into their vernacular. But there's a real problem when privilege becomes invisible to us. Like, like when we're unaware that those without the same privilege get stopped more by police. Or when certain people undergo more rigorous scrutiny at banks. Or when we get job offers that other people don't. Or when we realize that our privilege came to us as a result of hurting other people and taking away their privilege. Sometimes we can become so blinded to our own privilege that we actually become ungrateful for it. We might even feel entitled by it. Consider this. What is your daily income? Do you know that 10% of the world's population makes less than $2 a day? That 70% of the world's population, population lives for less than $5 a day? What's in your wallet? What's your privilege? You know, years ago, Malcolm Gladwell exposed a hidden privilege in his book, Outliers. And, and in the book, he debunks this myth that there are self-made individuals in the world. That human success stories happen only as a result of hard work. And Malcolm Gladwell invites us to consider, well, of all things, professional hockey players. And he asks the question, what is it that makes a professional hockey player successful? Is it just their hard work? Well, as it turns out, the vast majority of elite hockey players were born in the first six months of the year. 40% of them were born in the months January to March. Another 30% of them were born in the months from April to June. And then the number just kind of steadily declines as the months go on till the end of the year. 
So that's 70% of professional hockey players were born in the first six months of the year. What's that all about? Well, if you know anything about putting kids into hockey or sports, the age brackets in sports are pretty static. You can play up in age, but you cannot play down in age. And as it turns out, um, six-month age gap is a pretty huge advantage for a child when they're five or six years old. So kids born in January are bigger, they're stronger, they're faster than all the other players. And coaches recognize them. And when coaches recognize them, well, they get selected for rep teams. And when they get into rep teams, they get more coaching, they play more games. Essentially, they are put in this fast lane to success all because of the month that they were born in. And as it turns out, this applies for other sports as well. So parents, if you are thinking of giving birth to a famous sports player, this is probably your worst month. <laughs> now, this doesn't mean that professional hockey players don't work hard. But you cannot deny that many of them has, have benefited by the month that they were born in. By the way, guess what month Wayne Gretzky was born in? January. So privilege can be invisible, but it can also be dangerous. You see, your privilege can shield you from the rest of the world. You can use it as kind of a, a protective wall around your life. You can use it to avoid risk. You can use it to keep away certain kinds of people who aren't like you. It can insulate you from a world that Jesus was dying to save. And as a matter of fact, you can even use it to push God out of your life. Now, we, we don't know enough about Simon the Magician's story to know what kinds of privilege he had. But we do know that Simon sought a different kind of privilege. Simon sought status. Which, in fact, is the most dangerous kind of privilege. Remember, it says that Simon, he went out of his way to let people know he was somebody great. And as a result of that, people believed him. They called him great. See, status is different than privilege. Status is something that's actually only given to a select group of people. It isn't something that's widely shared, like privilege. It's supposed to be a scarce commodity for the people who seek after it. That's why it's called status. Did you know that the word status literally means where you stand? So chasing after status, it's about finding your place in line in front of everybody else. It's about rank, it's about numbering, it's about location. And oftentimes it's fueled by this desire to be somebody, to do something. And just by default, status ends up excluding everybody else. This is uh, actually what Jesus was trying to weed out of the soil of his disciples' hearts. You might remember the story. James and John sent their mother in to Jesus with a request. And he said, you know, mom, could you help us out here? Can you ask Jesus if we could sit at his right hand and his left hand in his coming kingdom? Well, in that culture, those who sat next to the right and the left of the throne were the people with the most power in the kingdom, those with the greatest status. That's what they were after. They were after, they were after their place in line. But Jesus told them, he said, listen, in my upside down kingdom, the first shall be last and the great shall be servants. Because God has designed us and created us to help other people flourish, not just ourselves. See, status looks to itself at the expense of others, but servanthood looks to others at the expense of oneself. There's a difference. 
Well, let's keep reading. Acts chapter 8, back into the story. Verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So this is a fascinating part of the story. I mean, as great as Simon was, he did an about face when he was confronted with this greater power. Philip was doing things that Simon could not do, which amazed Simon. He could not deny the undeniable power of God. So let's look at what happened next. Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So Peter and John head out from Jerusalem and go down to the city of Samaria because they want to help these new believers. And they get there and they discover, okay, they had been baptized, baptized in water in the name of Jesus, but they had not yet been baptized in the Holy Spirit. What is that all about? Well, we actually don't have time to break all of that down today. I'd love to do that, maybe for another series. But it's enough to say this, is that in the book of Acts, what it's trying to expose is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was the fulfillment of God's promise. It was the sign and the fulfillment of God's promise through the prophets that God would ultimately pour out his spirit in the last days. And they were demonstrating story after story how this is the age that God had brought them into. But it's also important to know that the baptism in the Holy Spirit came with power. This, was, uh, this is what Jesus promised to his disciples before he ascended into heaven. So let me just look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is at the very beginning of the book, and it's there for a reason, because it's setting you up for what comes next. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says this, But you will receive power, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit, keep this in mind, this is important. It is a baptism in power, power to witness, power to do the impossible. Let's keep, keep going, verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. You know, Simon was a new believer, right? And, and this story just shows us just how hard it is to shake old habits. You know, transformation isn't something that happens in an instant. Oftentimes, it's a journey of a lifetime. But Simon was still seeking status. He saw what the power of the Holy Spirit provided, and he wanted access. And it turns out his, his motives for this weren't actually stellar, as you will discover a little bit later on in the story. But I want you to know it's just kind of the, the lack of self-awareness that Simon has in this moment. I mean, these are bigwigs coming down from Jerusalem, leaders of the movement, and, and like, it's like he's a disconnected from social reality. And he actually tries to bribe the apostles into giving him some of their power. So it's like a magician going to another magician and saying, hey, that was an amazing card trick. Could you show me how to do that? I'll give you some money, right? Simon may have been suffering from something that's called hubris syndrome. This is a term that behavioral scientists use. And they say that many powerful people can often suffer from this disorder. Particularly if they've had power for a very long time or they've never had checks and balances on their power. 
And here are the symptoms of, of Huber's syndrome. Here's what they say. You have a disproportionate concern with image and presentation. You have a contempt for the advice or criticism of other, others. You have an exaggerated self-belief in what you can achieve. You lose contact with reality, restlessness, recklessness, and impulsiveness. Sounding familiar? Any leaders we can think of? Too much power for too long without guardrails can actually reduce a person's capacity for empathy and compassion. Your power has so shielded you from the powerless for so long that you can no longer relate to them or to their plight. You're just disconnected. No empathy. This may have been something that Simon was suffering with. Let's keep going. Acts chapter 8, verse 20. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Wow. I mean, like Peter's, Peter's response is a little bit harsh here, right? I hope you die with your money. That's what he's saying, okay? There's, there's no Canadian kindness in this response here at all. But there's a reason why he is being so direct with Simon. And it's because Simon fundamentally misunderstood how God's power is distributed. See, with magic, you can manipulate spiritual forces so that they will do your bidding in the natural. And you do this through incantations or rituals or sacrifices. And Simon thinks that God's power is a commodity, something that you can purchase, something that you can trade in. But God's power is not a commodity. Peter is very clear on this. God's power is a gift. And God cannot be manipulated. His power is given to anyone who receives Christ, who surrenders their life to him. We cannot buy it. We cannot barter, it, barter for it. His power is only a gift. And you can imagine, you know, Simon, he probably had dreams about how he's going to use this power, right? He might use it to leverage his own status, right? He, he could bottle it. He could create a startup company, maybe sell it online, take it on the road. He'd be the primary distributor of this new power. Oh, the things he could do. Oh, the places he could go if he just had access to this power. But we see from the story that, that Simon actually had a heart condition. It says that his heart was not right before God. And he was seeking power for all the wrong reasons. Peter's diagnosis of his problem is really clear in verse 23. He says this. He says, Simon, you are in the gall of bitterness. Well, what does that mean? What's that all about? Well, the gall of bitterness is actually a throwback reference to the Torah. And it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 18 to 19. Let's just have a quick look at it. Here's what it says. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware. Lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. And this will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Backstory, a bit of backstory here. So uh, the nation of Israel had turned their 
backs on God. And now they were renewing their covenant at a place called Moab. And Moses is warning them, yet again, do not go back to serving idols like you did in Egypt. Okay? Because remember, they just had this golden calf incident, tore it down, all that, you know, a big mess, big holy mess. Okay? So now they're, 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 they're regrouping. So don't go back to serving those idols like you do in Egypt. Your heart should not be divided between the Lord and idols. The covenant actually requires full allegiance from you. It requires allegiance from the inside out. So the gall of bitterness that he's talking about is is having this divided heart. One this, this heart that is secretly still in love with idols and yet plays lip service to the covenant. And Moses is saying to the people at that time, don't think you're safe. Don't think you're safe. God knows. God knows. So this was Simon's problem. Simon's problem was his heart was full of idols. Even though he still believed, even though he was baptized, he still had a love affair with power. He still wanted to be great. He, he longed for the applause of the crowd. He wanted to be sought out, to be famous. He, he wanted to be kind of a big deal. You see, an idol is anything that's in our heart that replaces God. It, it, it becomes the primary source of our value, of our worth, of, of, our, of our meaning. An idol doesn't have to actually be a, a piece of wood or, or a piece of metal, some little totem. Anything can become an idol if it replaces God in our lives. Addictions, distractions, friends, children, spouses. An idol is a good thing that becomes a God thing, and then it becomes a bad thing. You've heard me say this a number of times. And for Simon, his idol was power. Now, power is interesting because, because power can actually be anybody's idol. It can be your idol. It can be my idol. Leaders aren't the only ones who struggle with idols of power. It can happen anywhere. It happens when people bully other people at work or in the neighborhood. It happens when we use gossip in our social circles to, to bring them down in order to lift ourselves up. Look how bad they are and look how great I am. We see power dynamics occurring in families, in communities, on sports teams, online, and yes, in church memberships. Like Simon, none of us is immune to the lure of power. And often, we don't think that what we're chasing after is power. And this is because power is, is, is so subtle sometimes. And it masquerades as something else. Let me give you a few examples. Nationalism is one of them. It is good to have pride in your country. But when the power and the prosperity of your nation becomes greater than your allegiance to Christ and his kingdom, you're dabbling in idolatry. You are loving someone or something more than Christ. When you wrap the flag around the cross, your loves are disordered. And I think a great example of this is this angry mob that stormed the U.S. Capitol building a number of months ago, and a large number of them said that they were Christians or followers of Jesus. Nationalism. Here's another example. Your ideology can become your idol. What is an ideology? An ideology is a system of ideals that forms the basis of a political or economic policy. So, communism, socialism, free market capitalism, choose your partisan flavor. 
For some people, their ideology becomes the ultimate solution to everyone's problems. It promises the world while at the same time demanding total life commitment. But when you equate love for Jesus with love for a political party or ideology, then you are wrestling with a very spiritual problem. You have elevated a finite system above an infinite God. How about another example? How about success? This is one we're all very familiar with. We're steeped in a culture driven by success. And having success isn't a problem per se, right? Some people are successful and they didn't even try to be, right? Post a little video on TikTok about chicken nuggets and suddenly I have a million followers. Wow, I'm successful. But when success becomes your driving force for security and worth, it can become an idol. And success has many forms. I mean, it looks like fame, notoriety, accomplishment, platform, whatever. And Simon was driven after this idol of success. Now, there are many problems with idols, okay? The most obvious one is that we're cheating on God when we chase after idols. That's, I think that's fundamentally clear from Scripture. But let me give you two practical reasons why we should avoid idols in our lives. The first one is our idols fail us. You know, if, uh, idols never d deliver on what they promise. The ROI on idols, the return on investment, is always diminishing. So you actually have to continually work harder to get them. And in the end, they actually take more than they give from you. And this is because idols are finite. They can never fill the God-shaped vacuum that God has created inside of you. Only God himself can do that. Madonna understood this. Some of you young folk maybe not know who Madonna is because she's over 60, but she's kind of a big deal, okay? She's actually one of the top 100 women slated by Time Magazine. But here's what Madonna says later in her career uh, as she was um, doing an interview with Vanity Fair. She says, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage, and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre, and that's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. When power is your God, you have a very real problem. Once you have it, you'll always want more, and you will never have enough. But not only do our idols fail us, they also transform us. We shape our idols, and in the end, our idols shape us. We learn this from Psalm 135. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. And those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. When you make power your idol, it shapes you. It is undeniable. You begin to care less and less about the consequences of your decisions because, after all, you're above the law. You begin to treat people like, like pieces in a board game, like a power game. People become competition or collaborators, pawns or prey, but not people. Now, in recent years, 
the church has faced many public scandals. There are celebrity pastors who've used their power to abuse others. We know this from the news. Bill Hybels, John Vanier, Ravi Zacharias. I'm sure a number of you have listened to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, available on Apple. Then, of course, there's the issue of unmarked graves in residential schools. Now, this doesn't mean that this abuse is happening everywhere. I'm guessing that for every abusive spiritual leader, there are probably hundreds following faithfully in the footsteps of Jesus. You just don't happen to hear about those ones in the news. They never get talked about. But I, I seem to think that this isn't just a problem of leaders abusing power. There are many writers and authors who have suggested that our recent scandals stem from a toxic church culture that we're facing in North America. And this toxic culture is rooted in seeking power. We think we want to give power to the church, but the church has never been at its best when it is in charge and has power. It's never at its best when it has power. When the church seeks after power, it can commit one of two errors. On the one hand, like Simon, we use God's power to build our success and status. On the other hand, we can use worldly power to try and build God's kingdom, only to discover in the end that that's not what we set out to do, and we end up with something very drastically different. Neither of these strategies ultimately work because both of these strategies are rooted in idolatry. So let me just be honest with you this morning. Let me share my struggle. I often fear that the church has become hungry for the wrong kind of power. That we, we've, we've traded in and we've become drunk on worldly power. And for some reason, like the rest of the world, we're, we're enthralled by stardom. We love our celebrities. We chase after well, we chase after platform and we pine after political power. And so have we become unwitting co-conspirators with the world in their endless pursuit of power? Now, I, I think it's really easy to point fingers, but I, I'd like us to consider this. The problem may not, in fact, be out there. But the problem may, in fact, be in here. Just like Simon, the problem might be deeply embedded in our own hearts. And I want to confess to you this morning that this is something I wrestle with. As a public figure, as a pastor, in a world of social media, this is something that I often wrestle with. So pray for your pastor. Because guess what? Your pastor is not perfect. And I will pray for you also. But can we reach an agreement on this this morning? Can we hold each other accountable for our wrongful pursuit of worldly power. I like how Goggin and Strobel put it in their book, The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. They say this. It's really simple. We are not created to pursue power as an end in itself, but rather to pursue God, the powerful one, and abide in his power to bless the world. See, God doesn't just give us his power. God gives us himself. And when we are filled with the Spirit, we are filled with God himself, and that is our power. And so what do we do with these disordered loves in our lives, right? Because we all have them in our hearts. Well, the answer is, is we actually need to interrupt this quest for power. And that's what Peter did uh, for Simon, right? He said, don't what? He said, repent. You need to repent, man. 
You need to do an about face. Turn your back from your sin and turn your face towards God. And I think like Simon, we need to have our quest for power interrupted. Well, how do we do that? Well, for the last five minutes, bear with me. I know I'm a little bit longer this morning, but I want to talk about how we can interrupt power in our own lives really quickly. Three practical ways. Number one, stewardship. The first way to interrupt power in your life is through stewardship. This involves rightly understanding your place in the universe. You are not the owner of all you have. You are just the steward of all you have, including your power. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And he wants you to use it to bless others, to build his kingdom, and to bring him glory. And ultimately, each and every one of us will give an account to God of how we use our power. So use it well and continually remind yourself of where it came from. You want a way to do that? Gratitude every single day. Here's the second, service. The second way to interrupt our power is to use it for the sake of others. This is the way of Jesus who set aside his power to come and dwell among us. He moved into the neighborhood of humanity and became the servant of servants. And his ultimate act of service was to surrender his life for ours. You know, service isn't just like a, a nice little gesture that we do every once in a while. Service is a life's calling for a believer. Service is our vocation. When you serve other people who are in the margins, you are reminding yourself that you are a channel of God's power to the world. You are not the source. You are just a channel. Number three, spiritual disciplines. These are the spiritual disciplines uh, that believers pursue to grow so their souls and to connect with God. That's what these practices are. You know, when we engage in spiritual disciplines like prayer and, and, and Bible reading, for example, we're ultimately just admitting our dependence on God. We're admitting that we need God, that we cannot live the Christian life apart from God and in our own strength. But I want to suggest to you this morning three disciplines in particular that will interrupt our drive for power and success. Silence, solitude, and fasting. These three disciplines teach us that the world will continue revolving even when we're not in it. That God is ultimately the one in control, not us. And we are reminded that our only food is God, not our power. Friends, let me end with this. I long for the day where I will become far more like Peter and a lot less like Simon. So may we preach Jesus and not ourselves. May we walk in the Spirit's power and not in other powers so that we can proclaim how good and great our God is. May we be the supporting actor in God's story rather than inviting God to be the supporting actor in our story. And there is good news for us today. Here it is. Jesus came for failures, not success stories. He came for sinners not for heroes. He came for the lost. He came for the lonely. He came for the brokenhearted. And the good news about that is that means every one of us. We are famous in God's eyes through Jesus. And that is enough. Let's pray. Let's just take a moment. And we have just a brief moment here to allow God to interrupt our lives.
And what that might look like today for you is just to say, Lord, I want, I want to surrender my life afresh to you today. And maybe there's something that God tapped in your life, tapped you on the shoulder about, that you need to surrender to him. I'm going to give you a moment to do that. Our Lord is gracious. His face is turned towards you. He invites you to come. Take a moment and be honest with him and share your heart. Lord, we thank you for the gift of power that you've given us as your image bearers. And we thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit who dwells in us and enables us to do the impossible and to speak with boldness and clarity. And God, we ask you to forgive us as a church where we have dabbled in worldly powers and powers that are not of you. Thank you that we are powerful because of you. And Lord, so help us to use what we have to bless the world, to set captives free, to bring healing and wholeness to those who need it. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness and your grace towards us. Thank you for receiving us this morning. We give you thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.